Our Bible reading today is from Amos chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I'll bring them down. Though they hide themselves at the top of Carmel, there I'll hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I'll command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I'll command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Camptor, the Arameans from Kerr? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, for I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. And all who say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day I'll restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading the grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never to be uprooted from the land I've given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please keep your Bibles open as we study the last chapter of Amos in our last week after nine weeks. It's been a hard slog, hasn't it? It's been one passage after another on the judgment of God. So good on you for making it this far. It's never easy to hear of God's judgment, let alone so much of it, week after week after week. But it's important for us to be reminded that God is a holy God, isn't it? A God who won't tolerate sin and put up with religious people. A God who won't turn a blind eye to injustice and let everyone do as they please. For unless we truly grasp the gravity of our sinfulness, we won't ever deeply appreciate the beauty of the gospel. It's a bit like when you go and buy a diamond ring. Uh, the jeweler doesn't just hand you the ring. Uh, she places it on a black velvet tray 
so that you can see the beauty of the diamond ring against the darkness of the black background. And in a similar way, when we see the grace of God against the darkness of God's judgment, we see more clearly the magnitude of our sins and the splendor of the gospel. And so being reminded of God's judgment serves to warn us, a warning for our good so that we might cling to Christ as our plumb line and live for him as our king. It's a bit like the way parents warn their kids uh, that their actions have consequences. Recently I came across a couple of ways some parents prepare their kids for the real world. Uh, one boy is particularly naughty, so much, uh, so much so that his mum believed that he'll end up growing up going to prison. And so as punishment, she wouldn't just send him to time out. She will make a makeshift prison for him. Make him sit under an office desk, flip the chair upside down and push it against the desk like it, that there's a slats of um, prison bars. And at dinner time, she'd come up to him with hard rolls and a glass of water. Pass it through the slats so that he feels like he's in prison. So he knows what it'll be like if he continues being naughty. And another story is about two brothers with, uh, who were gifted bow and arrows. Uh, they were allowed to shoot at a cardboard box, but one of the boys decided to climb into it and let the other boy shoot at him. Thankfully, he was okay, but his parents found out and got that boy to lay on his bed all day, completely still, so he knows what it's like to be on a hospital bed. Now, I'm not endorsing these parenting methods, and I certainly didn't do these things to our kids, but in a similar way, that's what hearing God's word of judgment is like. It's meant to help us to see that our sin will lead to consequences. It's to warn us that it's not okay to live in sin like ancient Israel did. For you never want to stand on the wrong side of God. Because as we'll see in today's passage, when Amos sees his fifth and final vision from God, it's like a vision unlike the others, because this time he sees God himself. And, he, and God doesn't ask him, well, what do you see, Amos? God tells Amos what's going to happen. And so God here appears at Bethel the religious center of ancient Israel, the place where the people of Israel were coming to bring their sacrifices and their offerings. And you can just imagine how packed Bethel would have been. People would have been coming from all corners of Israel, coming to offer their sacrifices to God, uh, the, the priests performing these sacrifices on their behalf, children singing praises to God. The place would have been jam-packed. And then God appears. And, and he appears here standing beside or, or even above them, looking down on them at the altar. And he sees right through their hypocrisy and he announces their demise. Verse 1, I saw the Lord standing by the altar or above the altar and he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake, bring them down on the heads of all the people. That is, bring the whole building, this, this, this structure Make it fall upon the people who are there falsely worshipping me in my name. Let them all die under this rubble. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away, none will escape. It's a, it's a horrifying, terrifying vision, isn't it? 
that God standing, towering over the people, worshipping him. And he says, this is the end of them. They shall all die as they worship me. Because they aren't worshipping me with their hearts. And it will be terrifying for us, just as it will be for us if we were a criminal. And we stood on the wrong side of the law and the police came knocking on our door. We'd be terrified. And here you have the presence of God appearing before people who stood on the wrong side of the law of God. Well, that's what happened in New Zealand in 2020, a couple of years ago, when Romney Fuki Fukofuka was flying home from the States. Before he checked in his bag, he took a photo of his luggage, sent it to New Zealand to three baggage handlers. You see, Fuka Fuka was smuggling in drugs. In his suitcase was over $7 million of methamphetamine. And the plan was quite simple. He sent the photos. The, bag, uh, the baggage handlers will know which bag was his. And their job was to take it off the carousel into the car park and drive away with it. And so when the plane lands, Fuka Fuka comes to the carousel and it's filled with cops. So he runs and hides in the bathroom. He texts the bag handlers and they get terrified. They run to the car. They try to escape. But in a, <laughs> but, but, but they were caught. But they were caught because police had intercepted their phone conversations and messages. The police knew exactly what was going on. And that's why they were on the scene. They tried to hide. They tried to run. But there was no escape. They were all caught. And in a similar way, God knows what ancient Israel has done. He's heard every conversation of bribery. He's seen every act of oppression. And so no matter where the Israelites try to hide and run, God will find them and bring justice. There'll be no escape. And so from verses 2 to 5, God speaks in hyperbole to bring this point home. He, makes five different, he paints five different scenarios where people might try to hide from God, might try to run from God, but the result's the same. You can't run, you can't hide from God Almighty. God will find you, and God will make you face his judgment. And so verse 2. Though they dig to the depths, that is to Sheol, to the place of the dead, if they go to where people can't even go, to the place of the dead below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, which is obviously impossible, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from the eyes of the bottom of the sea, there I will command my serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I'll command the sword to slay them. And hear these terrifying words, I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. You see, no matter where they go or where they try to hide, there won't be any escape from God's judgment. For God's eyes are now on them, not for good, but for harm. What a terrifying situation to be in. Uh, when my kids were younger, uh, we used to play hide and seek all the time. It was a family favorite. And it always made me laugh. 
Uh, I closed my eyes, count to ten, and the, and, and the kids would scatter. They'd go into hiding. You can just hear the footsteps running here, running there, trying to decide where to go. Now, after you play hide-and-seek a few times with your little kids, you'd know where they'd hide, like under the desk or behind a curtain. But to make it fun for them, I, I walk around the house, I'm pretending to be looking for them, even though I already know where they are. Uh, I called out random things like, Oh, Maddie! Uh, is Maddie behind the piano, which is obviously impossible? Or is Liam in the fridge? Uh, or is Peter in the bookshelf? Uh, and I'd hear giggles and laughter. And sometimes one of them would even call out and say, No! And after doing a few laps around the house, I'd find them. Now, given their age, we can completely understand why they thought I could never find them, that they were so clever, they're so able at hiding in all these obscure places, but in reality, they were very easy to find. And it's the same with God. You see, we might think that we can be so clever and outsmart God and hide from God and run from God and God will never find us, God will never see us. But we can't. Ancient Israel should have known better. They should have known that they couldn't run from God and hide from God. After all, they sang songs about the almighty God, the sovereign God, the omniscient God. Even at Bethel, they would sing praises to God, to this powerful God. So verse 5 is an example of a hymn that they would have sung about God. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, that is the Lord of hosts, the Lord who commands the armies. He touches the earth and it melts. And all who live in a mourn, the whole land rises like the Nile and sinks like the river of Egypt. He's built his lofty palace in the heavens and sets his foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. God is an awesome God, a powerful God, a commanding God. What he says goes. Ancient Israel sang these praises of God. They knew who God was. Yet they thought they could run from God. Ancient Israel believed in the power of God, yet they thought they could hide from God. It's, it seems ludicrous, doesn't it? That you would sing on the one hand these praises of this mighty God, yet you think that you could hide from this mighty God. But, but do we do the same thing as well? So this morning... We just sang and praised God. One of the verses we sang was, He shall reign in power. He shall return in power to reign. Sorry. He shall return in power to reign. Heaven and earth will join to say, Oh, praise him. Hallelujah. We praise an almighty God who reigns, who is a powerful God who does as he wills. We sing praises about the power of God and the reign of Jesus as king of heaven and earth. Yet do we do we run from God and think that he could, can't find us and can't catch us? Do we live like we can hide from God? Like the way we might hide from a sermon or the preaching of God's word or the reading of God's word when we think, oh, that's a message that so-and-so should have heard, but not me. Do we run from God's word by not listening to it, by not applying to our lives and think that it's for someone else and not for us? Do, do, do we uh, uh, run from God and hide from God like the way we might hide behind a clean browser history 
only because we've deleted our dirty browser history. Or or the way we might hide behind godly wisdom we offer to others, but fail to apply such godly wisdom to our own lives. Do, Do we hide and run from God in our lives, thinking that God can't see what we do and hear what we think? You see, the problem with ancient Israel was that they took God for granted and became complacent. They thought that the pagan nations around them deserved God's punishment, that Amos' message was for them and not for, for us. But they were wrong. And we must heed the warning. We must not fall into the trap of ancient Israel. After all, for them, they, they, they thought out of all the nations, God chose Israel. God's the one who saved us from the land of slavery to make himself a holy kingdom. And here they were. Not in the land of slavery, but in the promised land. Descendants of Abraham, children of the promise, surely God will look favorably upon us. But God tells them that that's not, he's not just the God of Israel, he's the God of all nations. Have a look at verse 7. Are you not Israelites, the same as the Cushites? declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaptor, and the Arameans from Kerr? See, God might have brought Israel out of Egypt, but God also brought the Philistines from Kaptor. He's done done similar things for other nations. Sure, Israel has a special place in God's uh, uh, plan. They were special, sure, but it didn't mean that they could do what they wanted. They, could, they would think that God would turn a blind eye to their sins. It didn't mean that they didn't have to repent of their sins. They should have known better. They had the law. They should have known how to love what God loves and hate what God hates. But they didn't. In fact, Israel should have known better because they were to be a royal priesthood a holy kingdom to draw the people to God. But instead they have become an unholy priesthood and a sinful kingdom that God will now destroy. Verse 8, Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Isn't that tragic? That God saved them to be a holy kingdom a royal priesthood, and now God describes this nation that he loves as a sinful kingdom that he will destroy. Can you just sense how heartbreaking it is for God to save those who become so sinful? I recently read a story about an elderly man in his 70s. He's in California. It was just... Minding his own business, crossing the road, and, and, and a couple, out of the blue, a couple of boys rocked up to him, started having conversation with him, and the next thing you knew, one of them kicked him in the chest, he falls over, and as he's trying to get back up, they kick him again, he falls over again, and they keep kicking at him, spit on him, and then walk away like nothing had happened. Thankfully, it was all captured on CCTV. One of the boys in the video was Tyrone McAllister. He's the son of the police chief. Maybe for Tyrone, he thought that since his dad's the top cop of the city, he could get away with it. His dad would have his back, maybe even bend the rules a little, divert the police officer's investigation to another location so that he could do as he pleases, harass those he wants to harass, bully those he wants to bully. 
But as we've seen over the past few weeks, ancient Israel didn't just attack an innocent man. Ancient Israel oppressed the poor, bribed judges, and they thought that because they were God's people, God will turn a blind eye to it. That God won't mind the way they live because they offer sacrifices. After all, aren't they the people of God, the descendants of Abraham living in the promised land? Well, just as Tyrone isn't above the law, and so we've seen, ancient Israel are not above the law of God. Tyrone's dad, the police chief, in fact helped police officers track down his son and arrest him. And so God will bring ancient Israel to account. You see, friends, because Jesus has died, we, 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 we can't say, oh, G- Jesus has died, we're safe. We go to church, we're free from the judgment of God. For faith without works is dead. Well, we can't say because we do this and this for God, we serve in this way and that way, we give this much and that much to God. And, th- and therefore, because we do so much for God, surely he's happy with us. Surely we're immune from the judgment of God to come. But unless we heed the warnings of God and keep repenting of our sins, we're no different from ancient Israel. Now up to this point in Amos, a whole nine and a half chapters of it, it seems utterly hopeless for ancient Israel, doesn't it? And if the book ended there, we would feel shattered and utterly hopeless and helpless too. Because we've heard over and over again that God's patience with ancient Israel has come to an end. He will destroy them. And that's the predicament that we all face. Unless, of course, God intervenes. Unless, of course, God remembers his promises. His promises to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. Unless God remembers his promises and is faithful in keeping his promises will all be lost. And that's exactly what we get at the end of Amos. Finally, some good news for ancient Israel and for us today. For after seeing over and over the darkness of God's judgment, we're now shown the diamond ring, the beauty of the gospel, the grace of God. He begins with an image of God as a cook. From verse 8, the halfway through verse 8. Amos tells us that God is like a cook holding a sieve. And God's holding the sieve, separating the good from the bad, the pebbles from the grain. This is a picture of Israel. God's going to put all of ancient Israel through the sieve to separate the pebbles from the grain. Those who remain in the sieve will be destroyed, the pebbles. Those who pass through the grain, uh, the, the sieve, uh, the grain, There is hope for them. There is hope for some. So, middle of verse 8, Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say, Disaster will not overtake or meet us. 
Amos has time and time again been calling Israel to repent. Otherwise, disaster will fall upon them and the land. And most of them didn't believe it. They didn't repent. They didn't heed the warnings. And here we have, in verse 10, God's summary of their heart. All the sinners among my people, what do they say? All the sinners say disaster will not overtake or meet us. What does that mean? What it means is this. At the heart of the sinner isn't someone who doesn't believe in God. For ancient Israel believed in God. The heart of the sinner isn't someone who's not religious because ancient Israel were very religious. But the heart of the sinner, the way in which God describes a sinner here, is the one who refuses to listen to the word of God. At the heart of a sinner is the one who refuses to heed the warnings of God that he will judge and right all wrongs. At the heart of the sinner is the one who refuses to repent and believe in the word of God. But notice that there are some who did listen, who will listen to Amos and believe. Because there are some who will fall through the sieve. They are the grain. And they will escape the judgment of God for they will listen to the word of God. They will believe the word of God. They will repent and seek the grace of God. And so God will preserve for himself a remnant that a king from David's line will rule. As he promised in 2 Samuel 7, his kingdom will be restored. In verse 11, in that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. And this kingdom, under the rule of a son of David, will not just be a united kingdom and a prosperous kingdom, that will unite all nations under the one king, as he had promised through Abraham in Genesis 12. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And this kingdom, this prosperous and united kingdom, from people of other nations included in this, will be people who return from the exile that God had promised to Moses in Deuteronomy 30. Verse 14, and I will bring my people Israel back from Israel, exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I'll plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. A reversal of the curses and the judgment of God in Amos 5. This is a glorious picture, a glorious vision of hope. No one would have expected it. No one would have thought that there'd be any hope left for Israel, but here it is, the gospel in the Old Testament. And James, the, the apostle of Jesus Christ, at the, at the council in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 15, as we saw last year, he actually quotes Amos chapter 9 in his speech to the people to tell us that 
the fulfillment of Amos 9 came with the coming of Jesus and the preaching of the gospel to the nations. And the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 was all about the inclusion of Gentiles into the kingdom of God. And there it is. The fulfillment has come. We are are evidence that the fulfillment has come, for we have come from all nations. Gentiles are brought into the kingdom of heaven, for even when Israel was unfaithful, God was faithful. Faithful to his promises, to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. When I was working at Telstra, I would often have conversations about Jesus with my colleagues uh, uh, quite quite regularly. And one of my colleagues, uh, one day, uh, I still remember it, we were just, yeah, our backs were together, we had uh, computers on opposite sides, and he turned around and he said, David, I don't understand the Bible. The God of the Old Testament is a, is, is a God of judgment. But the God of the New Testament is a God of love. You've got two different gods. It makes no sense whatsoever. Maybe that's how you feel about the Bible as well. After all, we've seen time and time again the judgment of God in the book of Amos. But just as we've seen now the grace of God in the book of Amos, I want you to also see the judgment of God in the New Testament. For we worship the same God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The God of the Bible is, the, is one God. For when Jesus returns, like God in Amos, he will also have a sieve, as it were, to separate the pebbles from the grain, the sheep from the goat. And so Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, from verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, when Jesus returns on that last day, and all the angels with him, this is God Almighty, the God of hosts, the one who commands the armies. He is surrounded by his angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne, the king in the line of David, and all the nations will be gathered before him, the promise fulfilled in Abraham. And he will separate He will be the one with the sieve, the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Verse 34, then the king, King Jesus, will say to those on his right, the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And what about those on the left, the goats? Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, friends, Jesus is the sieve. Jesus is the judge. He's the one who separates the pebbles from the grain, the sheep from the goats. And so we need to be careful not to despise the judgment of God and the hearing of God's word. We must listen to the preaching of God's word and take it to heart. Because it wasn't just, it wasn't just Amos who preached the judgment of God. 
Jesus did as well. And so as we wrap up our series on Amos, may we shake off the temptation to become complacent. May we search deep within our hearts and have those hard conversations with one another about our sins that we might truly repent and cling to the cross, that we might hold dearly to Jesus as our plumb line and seek the forgiveness of our our sins. May we deeply and profoundly know the grace of God and the forgiveness that we can only have in Jesus afresh so that when he comes to separate each and every single one of us and puts us through the sieve. May he say to you and to me, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Amen.